On the morning of July 19, 1892, 21-year-old Russian emigre Alexander Berkman entered the Chronicle Telegraph Building in downtown Pittsburgh with a pistol in his pocket and the intention of killing the most powerful businessman in the world, Henry Clay Frick. Dressed in a brand new suit, with his face shaven and black hair combed, Berkman blended in with the stream of businessmen flowing steadily through the atrium on their way to work. Although the Chronicle Telegraph building bore the name of a city newspaper, it was occupied not by reporters scrambling to meet deadlines, or by the constant thrum of ticker tape, but by the ranks of white-collar Carnegie Steel employees, well-paid executives and administrators, whose comfortable desk jobs kept them a safe distance from the murderous reality of the mills. Toward the end of the 19th century, Pittsburgh was producing steel at enormous rates, and its downtown was a booming business epicenter, alive with clubs, banks, department stores, and office buildings. As Berkman climbed the stairs to Carnegie Steel's second-floor suite, he felt the weight of the thirty-eight caliber Hopkins and Allen pistol in his pocket. As chairman of the Carnegie Steel Company, Henry Clay Frick oversaw the largest industrial manufacturing enterprise known to man. He'd been put in charge by Andrew Carnegie himself, who'd created the company earlier that year to help manage the business side of his rapidly expanding industrial empire. On the nearby banks of Pittsburgh's Three Rivers stood Carnegie's monolithic steel mills and foundries, in which some 30,000 men toiled around the clock, in the oppressive heat of open hearth furnaces, to keep the smokestacks billowing, so that vast quantities of steel armor plates could be churned out for the United States Navy. At the age of 42, Frick was already a self-made millionaire. Now, at the helm of Carnegie Steel, he was on top of the world. To young Berkman, who'd grown up under the influence of Russian revolutionaries and anarchists, Frick was a ruthless oppressor who killed defenseless strikers seeking only fair wages and safe working conditions. He had to be stopped. On the second floor, Berkman stopped a clerk and asked on which floor he might find Mr. Frick. Examining Berkman, heavy eyelids, long nose, and full lips, the clerk might have thought the diminutive young man's brazen request a bit suspicious. No one simply waltzed in and saw one of the most powerful men in America without an appointment. Surely thousands of people wished to speak to Frick, to praise or ridicule him to his face. Fellow entrepreneurs and businessmen regarded him as a genius of the highest order. The son of an unsuccessful small businessman, Frick had ascended through sheer determination to great wealth and power while helping build the city of Pittsburgh into one of the country's largest. Laborers, however, especially the tens of thousands of unskilled workers employed in Carnegie's mills and foundries, considered Frick a tyrant and cursed his name. Without question, he was the era's most reviled robber baron. If Berkman wanted to see him, he'd have to get in line. Berkman had already decided that he would not take no for an answer. But he was wary of drawing too much attention to himself. What he needed was access. He would return day after day if he had to, and he understood that behaving badly would only get him blacklisted from the premises. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a business card, and handed it to the clerk.
who agreed to pass along to Frick the message that a Simon Bachman from a New York employment agency was hoping for just a few minutes of his time.